Well, good evening. I want you to take your Bible and open the New Testament to the book of Romans. <clears throat> Excuse me, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I'm just going to read the uh, first uh, four verses out of this chapter. Romans 6, verse 1, Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. This is our uh, second time here returning to this portion of Scripture in our renewed study of uh, Romans chapter 6. We picked up last week after a very long delay because of the COVID situation and that long shutdown. Uh, And it's just a wonderful portion of Scripture. It requires us to think carefully and to pay attention to what Paul says. I think it's uh, a sermon that you might want to listen to twice. Uh, It's... it's, uh, common for me anyway to listen to something that is helpful more than one time just so i make sure i get it and this thing is just packed with truth this is a wonderful portion of scripture and if we think carefully and pay attention to what paul is saying if we do that again give it the careful attention that it deserves we're going to reap a rich reward because the chapter really is a wonderful portion it's a continuation of the argument that's found in chapter five And it speaks uh, primarily to the issue of having a proper understanding of grace. Grace working itself out in the life of a believer, an individual believer. Here, now, in time. Uh, Romans uh, 6 is a vital section of Scripture that describes what that life looks like. What uh, a life that leads to eternal life looks like. It speaks of newness of life. And it speaks to our union with Christ. Uh, Back in uh, chapter 5, you might remember in 12 through 21... Paul had been showing our relationship to Adam. Remember, there was that back and forth in Adam. This happened in Christ. This happened, right? So our relationship to Adam, then our relationship to Christ. He had proved previous to chapter 5 that uh, a man is in a desperate situation before holy God. But God, through his mercy, God, through his grace, has provided a way for men to be reconciled, a way for to have their sins forgiven, and that's through the propitiatory sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of his son, of the Lord Jesus Christ. God meets all mankind's needs through Christ. God provides a full, free pardon from sin through the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 3 and 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So God, by his grace, declares sinful man justified before him, fully pardoned, Uh, declared legally righteous, no longer liable for his sin, and now again positively righteous in Christ. That's the the doctrine of substitution that leads to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Again, God takes all of our sin, places it upon the person of Christ. He punishes Christ instead of punishing us. That's substitution. Christ becomes our substitute. He absorbs our penalty in full, which is death. Christ pays the penalty for our sin, which is death. He rises from the dead. Therefore, he justifies us, and God grants to us the perfect righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. He grants it to us, he imputes it to us, he credits it to our account, the righteousness of Christ. And we are declared not guilty, 
not by our own efforts, but again because of Christ. Forgiven, positively righteous because of Christ. Credited with Christ's uh, Christ's righteousness, again, justified. So again, God changes us in that great transaction uh, from sinful to now positively righteous in Christ, from guilty to not guilty, plus positively righteous. He makes that declaration because of Christ, because of our belief in what God has done through Christ, and that declaration is immediate, it's irrevocable, it's unchangeable, meaning that it lasts throughout eternity. Right, so if we have a biblical understanding of salvation, a biblical understanding of justification, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God and Christ. Right, so our justification de- de- guarantees our final redemption, our ultimate glorification. It speaks to the issue also of our union with Christ. Again, chapter 5, he talked about the fact we are identified with Adam. But once you come to saving faith, once you're justified, you are forever, we are forevermore identified with Christ. So justification, the legal declaration of God from the bench of the universe, if you will, by the ultimate judge, breaks our relationship with Adam and brings us into full union with Christ. And the reality of justification by faith alone and the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the reality of our union with Christ, through all that we're not only declared righteous, but God in his kindness, God through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, begins to work out that process in us. Right? We begin to look more and more like Christ. Our lives begin to look more and more like Christ. Because when God forgave us our sin, he, for, he, he justified us. Right? When he forgave us, he justified us, and then he began that process of transformation or the process of regeneration. Second Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. Get to start all over again. Right? God in his mercy wipes out every part of our past and you start new again in Christ. So again, justification by faith alone that leads to the imputation of Christ's righteousness that leads to salvation looks like something. Because again, salvation is more than just a forensic declaration. It's more than just a, a declaration from the, from the judgment seat of God. It is a transformation of life. Once we're justified before God, we are new creations. We no longer look like who we used to be because we are no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. Again, it's the doctrine of sanctification. Justification is immediate, instant, the hammer comes down, declared not guilty, positively righteous in Christ. Sanctification is a progressive thing. It happens over a period of time where we look more and more like Christ. We've been forgiven. We've been given a new life. We've been redeemed, given salvation. Now God grants to us newness of life. That's a phrase that Paul's going to use in this section of Scripture. Right? And it's going to lead to holiness. Because holiness, freedom from sin, is as much of, as a gift of salvation as forgiveness. Right? It, it's as much a gift of God's grace to the believer as say, salvation is in the redemptive act. So it's not just a, a legal reality. It's actually a reality. God changes and transforms our life. So if you're not living a holy life, if you're not more and more hating sin in your life, more and more loving righteousness in your life, if you're not progressively more and more looking like the person of Jesus Christ, then the truth is, from a biblical standpoint, you're not saved. It's just that simple. Right? We all know people who say they believe in Jesus. Okay, does their life reflect that? A life of a genuine believer looks like Christ. Because forgiveness leads to sanctification, justification leads to glorification, justification leads to progressive sanctification. It looks like something. It looks like something. 
Now again, chapter 6 here in Romans is a wonderful chapter, and it's a portion of Scripture that gives us hope. It's a portion of Scripture that helps us understand the freedom that we have in Christ. Again, the transformation of life, the newness of life. So amazingly, God in his kindness has not only provided a way for us to escape the coming wrath that's going to be poured out upon the rebellious, those who oppose him, and he does this for us to escape while we were yet his enemies. Right? When we were helpless, when we were hopeless, when we were ungodly, God demonstrates his great love towards us that Christ died for us. Christ himself provides for us new life. Christ died in order to overturn the harm and the destruction that Adam brought to the human race because of his sin and rebellion. Right? Adam sinned and he brought forth death, and death spread to all men because all men sinned. But then Christ came. Christ came. And the point that he's going to make over and over again is that Christ did so much more for mankind's benefit than Adam ever did towards mankind's destruction. And that's a key point for us to remember, is how much more the glory of the person of Christ, how much more Christ has done for mankind's benefit that Adam ever did in our downfall. So Christ brings us into an entirely new relationship with God. Christ brings us into new life. Christ takes us to a life that is free from the bondage of sin and a life that is free from the eternal penalty of sin. He completely changes us from the inside out and brings us new life and then freedom from our past. So, again, it's just tremendous. Uh, Paul's made it very clear that you're only two places in the world, right? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. A man who is in Adam still, a man who's in Adam is unforgiven. He awaits a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. But the man who is in Christ stands before God forgiven. Again, the supreme judge of the universe has declared that person just, justified, not guilty, positively righteous in Christ because of what Christ has done on the sinner's behalf. So when you come to chapter 6, Paul's asking a basic question, what does that look like? What does a life of one who is saved by grace alone through faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ look like? What does that life of a redeemed person look like in time? Now, Paul answers that question by saying that life looks like a life free from sin. That looks like a life that is freed from sin and a life that is now enslaved to God. It looks like a sanctified life, a holy life, and therefore it leads to eternal life. In fact, this is the only life that leads to eternal life. Only those who are freed from sin, enslaved to God, and sanctified by the person of uh, the Holy Spirit through the redemptive work of Christ, only those people are inheriting eternal life. Right, so that's what Romans 6 is about in part, eternal life. Look at the end of Romans 6, in verses 23, and Paul gives kind of a summary statement of, uh, of chapter 6, uh, verses 22 and 23, chapter 6. Again, it's a summary of the chapter. But now, verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and that outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There it is in very plain language. Right? It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a, a Roman Catholic, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, an atheist. Every person in this world, God says, are, are guilty in Adam. And the only kind of life that leads to eternal life is a life that is found in Christ. Not in your efforts, but a, a life that is found in Christ. Again, it's not what we do or don't do that leads to eternal life. It's who we are identified with before God that leads to eternal life. That's what matters. So again, if you're still in Adam, death and eternal punishment await you. 
But if you've repented and called out to God for mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are identified with Christ, then peace, life, eternal life belong to you with absolute confidence. So again, Romans 6 shows us a life identified with Christ, what it looks like. And you remember the question uh, last time that we looked at primarily verses 1 and 2, where it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sins to live in? So what Paul is doing is he's taking up the issues that arise from proclaiming the gospel of grace. And in a straightforward fashion, he is attacking head on the false teaching of antinomianism. And antinomianism basically says, let's do evil so that uh, good may come. Antinomians basically say, look, if we're saved by grace, by Christ alone, if we're guaranteed our spot in heaven, then the antinomian says, come, let's do whatever we want, right? Let's sin. And perhaps if we uh, sin more, then God can display his grace even more in our life. And of course, Paul answers, how should we who continue in sin, or how should we continue in sin so that, or shall we continue to sin that grace may increase, verse 2 may it never be, how should we who die to sin still live in it? So Paul says, look, for a genuine believer to continue a habitual life of a pattern of sin, a lifestyle marked by sin is an impossibility. That's why he says, may it never be. A true believer who's justified by faith through grace in Christ alone, a person who has come under the reign of grace, under the reign of superabounding grace, that grace frees him from the bondage of sin and the reign of death. And that's the whole purpose of grace. The purpose of grace is to bring freedom not more bondage. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And again, the, the, the phrase is absolutely not, right? May it never be. No, 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 right? It's just impossible. And, and the apostles' main argument to support that fact that a believer can't live uh, that kind of life marked by a habitual pattern of sin is found in that statement, we died to sin. So Paul asked the question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So the question that we have to ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to have died to sin? It means to be freed from the reign and the rule of sin. So if you're justified by God, by grace, through Christ, if you're justified before God, sin no longer has a hold on your life because you've been taken to, transformed, uh, transferred uh, into another realm. You're now in the realm of grace. So no longer is the believer under the power and dominion and the rule of sin, but now he's under the power and the influence of grace. And this all occurs in the history past, right? That, that phrase, die to sin, speaks of a past completed act, something that's a fact of history. Well, so I guess the next question would be, well, when did this happen? When did we die to sin? How did we die to sin? And the answer is, again, found in Christ, and it's found in the doctrine of our union with Christ. And again, for a large part, this is really what he's talking about in this portion of the text, all the way down to verse 11. Our union with Christ. So again, go back to chapter 5 and just through, through that text, right? The apostle introduced this doctrine. If you want, you can even look back at verse 18 if that would help you. He says, look, in, in the olden days when we were in Adam, right? Verse 18. So then through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. That was Adam, right? Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, right? What one man did for the destruction of humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ has done so much more for the benefit. Right? Verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that would be Adam, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. Again, there is our union with Christ. Our union with Adam brought us into the realm of condemnation because of his disobedience. Our union with Christ brings us into the realm of justification because of Christ's obedience. 
Right? God doesn't deal with this. I read it this morning. God does not deal with us on the basis of our deeds, but he deals with us on the basis of our relationship to Christ. <clears throat> Titus 3 and 4, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, that's a tremendous truth. He deals with us through the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't justify us on the basis of our deeds, but he saves us on the basis of the deeds which Christ has done, who the person of Jesus Christ is. And I I think there's really no doctrine that gives us a greater assurance, a greater hope, a greater comfort than this doctrine of the vital union between the believer and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, This is a profound truth, but on the other hand, uh, it's kind of Christianity 101. Right? This is truth about our salvation. Right? Let me just just curious. How many have you? Uh, how many have you heard somebody teach, except this pulpit, uh, on the doctrine our, the doctrine of our union with Christ? One, two, couple. Right? Three or four. Right? Not a lot. Right? And this is Christianity 101. We talked about getting saved, but what does that mean? Getting saved. Got it. Save from wrath to come. Save from eternal condemnation. I got it. What else does it mean? It means we're united with the person of Jesus Christ. So it really is Christianity 101. It's a basic doctrinal truth about salvation, but it's one that's not often taught or one that's not well understood. Right? Because there's a lot of people who are just not clear on this monumental but wonderful truth. And I think one of the reasons that people don't understand this doctrine of reunion with Christ, why it's not well understood, comes from erroneous teachings, false teaching, bad teaching on the following portions of scripture we're actually going to work our way through right and it's uh, ironic because this portion of scripture is to help us understand that union so bad teachers come along and they hash the whole thing up and they make it so confusing that nobody understands the the truth paul says verse three do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into christ jesus have been baptized into his death therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into his death so that as christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life so again, the question, what, is, what does all that mean? Now you'll notice in that portion that I read just there in verses 3 and 4, the word baptized is repeated twice. Baptism once. So what is the apostle talking about here? Is he teaching on the doctrine of water baptism? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? So I'm going to start out with a negative. I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean, right? I'm going to tell you what these verses are not teaching and I'm going to speak in brief uh, just some of the errors that people have taught concerning these verses, what they supposedly mean. First, some have wrongly taught that these verses are indeed teaching about the act of water baptism, that it's a rite of baptism that unites the sinner to Christ. To be baptized into Christ, according to this view, teaches that it is uh, the very act of baptism that regenerates a person's soul. It's the water by which grace is transmitted. There's something mystical or magical in the actual water that saves. These are the same kind of people who would believe that there's something salvific in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Something efficacious, something magical, something mystical, something redemptive in the elements of the bread and the cup. They would see that these elements, these are the means of grace, right? That God has transmitted through these elements uh, salvation to the one who takes men. This is known in the theological world as sacramentalism. This is taught by the Roman Catholics and others, and it is quite wrong on a biblical level. The New Testament teaches that that baptism is for believers. 
right? Those who've already given evidence of regeneration. So baptism is an outward visible picture of something that has already occurred into the inside. Baptism is a seal of an accomplished fact, not the means of regeneration. And those hold to the view of sacramentalism place an unbiblical emphasis upon the priest or the church as the one who gives life, right? They're the ones who carry out the act of baptism. Therefore, these individuals or the church that these people are a part of become very powerful because that's the only way that a sinner can receive grace. It's the sacramental view, and it's completely wrong. Secondly, again, in the error category, some think when Paul says we are baptized into Christ, he's speaking of water baptism in the sense that believers become united with Christ. Uh, They make... uh, in the sense that the believer becomes united with Christ when they make certain vows or certain confessions of faith or testimonies of faith during the baptism or during the baptismal service. This view kind of places an undue effort or undue emphasis upon the individual. What she has done, what he has done, what he will do or she will do. Right? As they declare their rejection of a life of sin and they're going to pledge their life to Christ. But here again, this kind of view is wrong because it's not about you not about me right it's not about us right what it's the fact that we are united with christ again titus 3 5 he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy right so paul's not teaching here it's all about you and you get into baptistry and you make these great confessions of faith that you're going to do and then you get saved because you made that confession that's not what he's talking about third another line of wrong teaching that uh, what means by this phrase baptized into christ it is the, the believer is baptized, listen, into Christ's area of influence. Christ's area of influence. Such as they were with Moses at the Red Sea. They're said to have been baptized into Moses or under his influence or leadership. First Corinthians 10, 1. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uh, unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea, right? There is a certain sense uh, of an element that some of that is true, that the believer is indeed baptized under the influence of the leadership of Christ. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. Another erroneous view, view number four, some teach that being baptized into Christ is nothing more than water baptism. Therefore, it's a sign uh, 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 of our belief in the saving act of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an outward sign, a symbolic representation of our death, burial, and resurrection uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we submit to baptism. We're united with Christ. Uh, that's helpful, but it still falls short of exactly what Paul's talking about here. Right? So what exactly is Paul talking about when he says we've been baptized into Christ? Well, listen, I don't think in this portion of Scripture that Paul is talking about water baptism whatsoever. When I, when I read this portion of Scripture and I understand what he's saying, baptism isn't the point. So this is a dry verse. Right? There's no water in this verse. It's a dry verse. Now, obviously, we hold baptism of very high importance. Um, we want to be obedient to the command to be baptized. But this section of Scripture is not so much about water baptism as it is Paul using an example from the physical world to teach a spiritual reality. That's the issue. He's using an example from the spiritual world to teach a spiritual reality. So again, this section of Scripture has a, a greater understanding of our union with Christ. So what does it mean in our union with Christ? Asking in that area of the question, what does it mean when Paul uses the phrase baptized into Christ Jesus? Well, I think, again, Paul uses baptism in the sense of a physical analogy to teach a spiritual truth and, again, to teach the reality of our union with Christ. 
Now, just stop and think about it. You've, you've seen Baptist, uh, baptisms, right? What happens? You've been baptized. What, what, what happens in a water baptism? What, what is it teaching? Right? Well, first, what happens? In water baptism, the person is immersed into the water, right? We, we dunk them. We don't sprinkle them here. We dunk them. If they don't give a good confession of faith, we hold them down a little bit longer. Until <laughs> we make good and sure that they've repented. Right? And when we put them into the water, they are what by the water? They are surrounded by the water. They are in the water. And when a person is placed into the water, that person is altered. In a very physical sense, they've been altered. From being dry to being wet. Right? By, the, by being placed into the water. So their union with the water transforms that person completely and thoroughly from a, from a state of dryness to a state of wetness. So I think that's really the reality in, in teaching of, of, of water baptism. We're not only teaching of our identification with the person of Christ, yes, with his death, burial, and resurrection, but when we, when we immerse a person into the water of baptism, we're teaching primarily, I think, our immersion into Christ. We're in Christ. Right? We used to be in Adam, but now we're in Christ. We're in him. He is in us. We are surrounded by him. We are in him, and therefore we are completely altered by him, transformed completely, thoroughly from one state to another, right? from the state of the realm of sin and death to the state of grace and life. So again, it's not water. That's not the issue. It's the picture of the transformation because of our union with Christ. That's what he's getting at. Uh, one writer says this, the tragedy is that many make the mistake of seeing water baptism as the means of salvation rather than the demonstration of it. And to turn a symbol into the reality is to eliminate the reality, which is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That's a tremendous statement. The tragedy is as, as many make a mistake of seeing water baptism as the means of salvation. It's just declaring something that has already happened. We believe in believer's baptism, not baptism for salvation. Right? The mistake, the tragedy, is seeing water baptism as the means of salvation rather than the demonstration of it. We go into the waters of baptism in obedience to the fact that God has changed our life. And to make that mistake, the writer says again, to turn the symbol into the reality is to eliminate the reality. Right? Again, you don't want the sign. You want the reality. You don't want the sign that says donuts. You want the donuts. Right? The sign's not the issue. The reality's the issue. So wet <clears throat> water baptism by immersion primarily teaches our immersion into Christ. And I think we forget that at times. I think the Romans perhaps forgot that. Why do I know that? Because that's what it says next. Right? Verse 3, I read it ahead. Right? Verse 3 says, do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Again, He's saying, in essence, don't you understand what baptism really teaches? Are you ignorant of the fact that water baptism symbolizes the spiritual reality of being immersed into Christ? And if you're immersed into Christ, you've been transformed completely and thoroughly. So when Paul's using this phrase, uh, baptized into Christ Jesus, he's not talking so much about water. He's using a physical analogy of water baptism to teach a spiritual truth. The believer is baptized into Christ, therefore he is immersed into Christ. Therefore, if he is immersed into Christ, he is united with the person of Jesus Christ. 
So that phrase baptized into Christ, again, teaches us of our union with Christ. Are you okay? Right? You doing all right? We used to be identified with Adam, now we're identified with Christ. We used to be united with Adam, now we're united with the person of Jesus Christ. We used to be dead in sin, and now we're alive in Christ. We used to be one state, now we're in a completely different state. All because of our identification, our union with the person of Jesus Christ. Now just think about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul gives an analogy here, and he talks about the church being the body of Christ. It's just a verse. I'll just read it for you. It says, 1 Corinthians 12, For even as the body is one, yet has many members, all members of the body, yet though they are many, they are one body, right? So also is Christ. Christ is the head, we're the body. Christ is the, we're all joined to the head. And how does it happen? Verse 13, For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, we're all made to drink of the one spirit. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into Christ, who puts us into the body of Christ. It's the work of God. By one spirit, we're all baptized into Christ. Again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us. He's not talking about water. right? He, he's talking about a fact that we are now one with Christ. We used to be with Adam. Now together in the church, collectively, we're one with Christ. We're in his body. right? And it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to come to life. It's the Holy Spirit who places us in union with the Savior. He baptizes us into one body. Now, I think you've got to understand here, um, look what it says here again in verse 3, what the Apostle is saying. Do you not know that all of us who have been, past tense, have been baptized into Christ? Right? So, again, he's, <clears throat> do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, again, he's saying, look, salvation is not just going to heaven. Salvation is not just uh, being changed from hell-bound to heaven-bound. Do you not know that all of us, who's us in the context? Well, it's all of us who are saved, right? All of us who are believers. All of us who are justified by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ. All of us, Romans 5, 1, who have peace with God. Do you not know that all of us who are saved have been baptized, immersed, fused, grafted into, or with the person of Jesus Christ? I mean, don't you realize that, right? He's saying, look, this is an amazing truth. Stop and gasp. Stop, stop and take a look here, right? We are immersed into Christ. We are transformed. We're altered completely, thoroughly. When you get into the water of Baptist, uh, baptism, you don't get just a little wet. You get all wet. When you are immersed into the person of Jesus Christ, you're not just a little bit in. You're all, you're all in. You're in him. He's in you. You're surrounded by him. He has completely altered and transformed your life. Don't you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We have been placed into a new environment. We've been placed into a new relationship. We have had our condition forever altered, right, because of our union with the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says the same kind of thing over in the book of Galatians, but he doesn't use the word baptism. You're familiar with it, Galatians 2 and 20. I'll just read it. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, right? The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's the same teaching. It's the teaching of our union with Christ. It's no longer me. I'm no longer who I used to be because now I've come to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The old me, he's done. He's gone. Now I'm in Christ. I'm united with Christ. I'm, I'm in union with Christ. I'm lost in Christ. I'm, you know, not like lost, lost, but lost. I mean, he's completely overwhelmed by the person of Christ. I'm transformed. I'm changed. I'm altered. I am a new man in Christ. Galatians 3.27, for all you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
There again is that phraseology, baptizing to Christ. You say, look, you used to be dead in trespasses and sin in Adam, but now you've come to Christ, and it's like you literally have taken off that death cloth, and you've wrapped yourself in the garment of Christ. He is who you are now, right? You are lost in him, right? So, so the, the justified believer, I'll back it up and say, just as the non-believer is united with Adam, the justified believer is now united completely with Christ. There is a vital life-giving union, right? A vital life-giving union. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, James, uh, or John 5, or John 15, 5, you know that. I am the vine, you're the branches, right? There's some kind of connection between the, the root and the branches. There's something in that root that has to give life to those branches, or those branches die. You go chop the branches off, they just lay dead on the ground, right? The vine has to give them life. And he's saying, look, there's a vital union, just like there is uh, the vine and the branches, there's a vital union that the, the, as those branches need the life-giving flow that comes from that stem, so the Christian. And the Christian, in fact, is in that life-giving union because of his communion with Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Whack them off, lay them on the ground, the branches are dead. But when they're hooked to the vine, Christ gives that life, Christ gives that, that connection. And alive in Christ, you abide in me and I in him, uh, and, and he and me, uh, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way you produce life in your fruit in your life is through your vital union with the person of Christ. Again, the branch is going to die without nourishment from the from the stem uh, that, that comes from that vine. So the Christian, the true Christian, without the Lord Jesus Christ, right, dies. He, he, he's not going to produce a life of godliness and holiness. Right? Christ is everything. Christ is everything. Christ is our life. So our union with Christ, a vital doctrine. Our union with Christ begins at our conversion, the moment of our regeneration. And again, it happens not by our own efforts, but it happens by the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. For by one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. So here in Romans 6 and 3, the point is the believer is immersed into Christ, into the person of the Christ, the life of Christ. He is saved in his life. Again, he's united with him. So the question that was asked at the top of the chapter, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Remember, he's answering that question. And the answer, verse 2, is may it never be. How should we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us, all of us who are justified, have been baptized into Christ? Don't you know? Haven't you understood? Don't you realize your union with Christ? Don't you realize your oneness with Christ? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? All of us who are justified who have been baptized into Christ. So again, he's saying it's an impossibility. Because you're united with Christ, you can't be united with sin. Because you're united with Christ, you can't be united with sin. You would not choose that, right? Remember that passage over in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them a member of a, heart of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is with one body with her? For he says the, Lord, the, the, for he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he's saying, look, Paul's saying if a believer joins himself to a prostitute, he's joining Christ to a prostitute. Why? Because the believer is in union with Christ. And again, the answer is may never be. How shall we who died to sins to live in? Are, are you getting the point? Right? We're united with Christ. Now, again, the question that he was answering at the top also was a person who thinks that a Christian is free to sin shows a total lack of understanding of what a Christian is. Right? So remember, there are certain people who are going, like, well, if you just teach free grace, then you're giving people license. 
right? And you just teach people it doesn't really matter what you do, then you're going to give them license to sin all the more. So we better bring some rules down here. I got that the free grace is nice, but we better have a few rules to keep this thing in check so people don't go astray, right? And Paul's saying, look, that's, that's not reality, right? Paul says, look, God's grace isn't going to lead to more sinning. That kind of understanding is wrong. Because the Christian has been saved by grace alone, free grace alone, by, by faith alone, and the person of Christ alone. A person is not going to live a life indifferent to holiness. In fact, that Christian has died to sin. He's been baptized into Christ. Therefore, his life is going to manifest holiness, not rebellion. Right? If we're united to the person of Christ, then we are united with him and receive all the benefits from him. Right? It's a total across the board. Whatever happens to him happens to us. Right? Adam sinned. One sin brought condemnation to all men and brought judgment and death. And what does Jesus Christ do? Because we're united with him, it brings us blessing. It brings us life. Right? It, it includes the guarantee of our final salvation. It's a tremendous truth, a wonderful truth, a marvelous truth. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, this is a marvel and a mystery of our salvation, and it's the most glorious thing we can ever contemplate. The Son of God, the second person of the eternal Godhead, came down from heaven to earth. He took unto him human nature. He joined human nature unto himself. He shared human nature. And as the result of his work, we human beings share in his life and are in him and are participators in all the benefits that come from him. And that is nothing, that and nothing less, that is Christianity. Right? It's not just what we believe, it's what the benefits we gain from our union with Christ. The results of his work, as we as human beings share in his life, We are in him. We are participators of all the blessings and the benefits that come from him. And that and nothing less is Christianity, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. Again, he's saying, look, this is Christianity 101. This is basic biblical doctrine. Again, a lot of people have never heard this. A lot of people have never been exposed to this truth. This This is the gospel. I mean, it's not just that we're saved from our sins, which is tremendous, but we're saved from our sin. We're transformed from the inside out. We start to look like the Savior. That's good news, right? It's not just that we're forgiven, it's not just that we're justified. It's We've been removed from one realm and taken to another realm. We've been removed from the realm of Adam, the realm of sin and death, and we've been transformed or transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Right. So for the Christian, being in Christ, we have been forever taken out of the realm of Adam. Our, our relationship with Adam is over. We're through with him. And we're now dead to sin. United with Christ, baptized into Christ, all the blessings of the Father come to us through Christ. Do you not know, right? Haven't you understood? Don't you realize? Haven't you really stopped, Paul's saying, and and thought about the complete union you have with Christ and what that means? So again, just as water baptism, our union with the water transforms us completely and thoroughly from, again, a state of dryness to a state of wetness, our baptism into Christ, our immersion into Christ, we're in him, he's in us. We're surrounded by him. We're in him, therefore we're altered by him. Transformed completely, thoroughly, from one state to another. From the state of sin and death to the state of God's grace and God's life. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? It's tremendous, tremendous truth. Again, but what does he mean by this? What does it mean you've been baptized into his death? So look very carefully what he says. We have been baptized into Christ, okay, have been baptized into his death. Not a death, not our death, but his death. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Because of his death, 
we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus because of our union with him, we derive certain benefits from his death. Right? It, it, it's the same principle. It's the, the, Paul's teaching. Uh, our union, our identification, identification, we're either identified with Adam or identified with Christ. So when Adam sinned, he brought certain results to mankind. And Christ, because of his obedience, he brings certain benefits to mankind, those who are united with him. When Adam sinned, everybody sinned with him. Right? When Adam sinned, the entire world fell with him. Right? The principle is the same for the believer. Because of Christ, when Christ died, we all died in him. We all died with him. Why? Because of our union with him. Because of our baptism into him. Because we're joined to him. So what Christ has done, we have done. We're that close. Right? What Christ has done, we've done. All of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Now, listen, this is positional truth. You've got to understand it. This is positional truth. This is objective reality. This is not about your feelings. This is a declaration from God about reality. This is how things are. This is something is true. That is true. Not your feelings. This is true. Right? We may not have felt like we sinned when Adam sinned. Right? Why am I responsible for his sin? Well, because the Bible says you are. And the fact that you all die shows that the fact that you are guilty in Adam. Well, I'd object to that. Well, you object all you want, but it's true. Right? Wages of sin is death. It proves it's true. Right? This is positional truth. Objective reality. It's God stating truth, not about our feelings. It's God stating truth. So we believe that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. We believe that because the Bible says that. The Bible says when he died, we died. Now, in Romans 6, verse 10, it says this, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And since it says that, the death that he died once for all, because of our union with Christ, that means that we have died to sin once for all. So what does that mean? The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Well, it means that he died completely and entirely to his relationship to sin. So what, what in the world are you talking about? What's his relationship to sin? It doesn't mean that he was a sinner in any fashion or form. Right? Some people blasphemously teach that, and he became a sinner on the cross, and that's what the Bible teaches. He was the one who knew no sin. He was the sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God. So what does it mean that the death that he died, he died to sin once for all? Or that he died to his relationship to sin? Now stop and think about why did he come? Why did he come into the world? Why did the, second, the blessed second person in the Trinity condescend, come down, take on human flesh? Why did he do that? Why did he who existed in the form of God not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, as it says in Philippians 2. Why did he do that? <clears throat> Shall I wait for an answer? Did he come to, right, he came to reconcile, he came to seek and save the lost. Right, that's why he did that. He, he came to be our substitute. Right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf and we have become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He came as the sin bearer. He came as the substitute. He came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to save sinners. He came to save mankind from their sin. And in order to do that, he had to place himself into a relationship to the law and a relationship to sin. He placed himself in a position to the realm of sin in order that he might be the sin bearer to rescue and to deliver us from that domain so that sin would no longer rule over us. Christ died to sin is what the scripture says. He died for the destruction of sin. 
He died on account of sin. He died for the expiation or the atonement of sin. And what is death? Death is it, right? It's, it's the finality. It's the end. It means separation. In a physical realm, just think about it. <clears throat> death means a person is done with activity in total in this world. Right? The activities of this world, the events of this world, the people of this world times, has nothing to do with those who are dead. They no longer are part of this room. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. So Christ died to the burden of sin, the burden of people's sin, that he came voluntarily out of love to bear in his own body upon Calvary's cross. Sin now has absolutely no control over him, no claim upon him, because he died to sin once for all by the one-time sacrifice of himself. His one-time sacrifice, perfect sacrifice of himself, freed him from the burden of sin that he voluntarily assumed, not because he had any sin, but he voluntarily assumed on our behalf. He took a relationship with sin to come to save us. So when Paul says the death that he died to sin once for all, it means that he died to his relationship for sin, and that fact that he died now, he's forever separated from it because we know that he's alive from the dead. He's finished with death. He's finished with sin. Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is to never die again. Death is no longer master over him. Right? So what does it mean for us, right? Death is no longer master over him. What does it mean that all of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into death? It's a past experience. A past experience because of Christ, therefore it's a present reality for us. It means because of what Christ has done, something has happened to us. It means because we're joined with Christ, our union with Christ, we are also joined in his death. And again, death is a final separation from that realm that the person is a part of. Christ died to death. He's done with the realm, uh, the relationship to sin. So if we're united with him, we're also done with that realm. Right? We're done with that realm in the relationship to the realm of death, to the reign of sin. Why? Because of our union with Christ. That's what happened to us because of what happened to him. We've been uni- united with him. We've been baptized into him. We've died to sin. Again, this is something that has happened to us. This is positional reality. This is reality. This is not something that ought to happen. This is not something that we should try to make happen. This is something that we have to understand has happened as a reality, right? Past tense has happened. We have died to sin because of Christ. So I I know the question that's coming. Somebody has to ask, well, well, I don't feel this way. Okay, I got it. Good. But listen to what God is saying. Didn't I say that this was an encouraging portion of Scripture? Didn't I say this was a portion of Scripture that gives us hope? Didn't I say this is a freeing Scripture that frees us from our old condemnation in Adam and that what Christ has done is so much more for the benefit of mankind than what Christ, that what Adam did for the destruction of mankind? How can all this be true since I don't feel like it's true? Again, it's objective truth. It's not subjective experience. This is eternal, heavenly truth, not a matter of how you feel about it. And it's all because of our union with Christ. Because salvation is so much more than just being saved from our sin. It unites us with the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 goes on. um, Paul says, Therefore, since we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death. Again, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to be buried? Well, just stop and think about it. You know, uh, well, if they dig a hole and stick you in it and bury you, that's probably final proof of death or you got some bad friends, right? It's final proof of death. 
It is the ultimate kind of death certificate, if you want, that a person really is dead, completely dead, dead, dead. They throw them in the ground, throw dirt on them, right? Burial is the final proof, the certainty of the fact of death. So our text says that he died, that he was buried, right? He died on Calvary's cross. He died to that relationship to the world that he entered in for as the sin bearer. He died to that life that was under the law. He died to that realm, that power of that realm, the power of sin. He was buried. Therefore, being buried, he has finally forever ended that relationship to sin and death. He's finished, Jesus Christ is finished with that particular relationship he had to sin. Again, the one he assumed, not because he needed to, because he has sin. No, he assumed that in order to deal with the issue of our sin. He came as the sin bearer. So what does that say about us? What about our union with Christ? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Our union with Christ marks the end of our being under the reign and the realm and the rule of sin. Why? Because we've been buried with him. Death certificate. Throw him in the ground. Done. Over. What shall we say? Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. When a person comes to Christ by faith, he's not only justified. He not only has a, a peace with God. Not only does he stand in grace, not only is he freed from the wrath to come, not only does he have a reason to rejoice or exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we see received reconciliation, but because he's been united with Christ, when Christ died, the believer died. When Christ was freed from the realm of sin, of death, sin and death, so was the believer. Again, verse 10, for the death that he died, Christ, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Again, what's true of Christ is true of us. In Christ, we're dead to Adam. We're dead to that old realm, that old kingdom. Now we are alive to God through Christ, and we are dead to sin. And we don't die, or we die to sin, and we live for God, right? The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God, right? That's our believer, that's our new position in Christ. Dying to sin, dead to the realm of sin, because we have a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I read it earlier. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Boy, it's kind of like come out of the grave time, right? Come right out of the grave, right? But Christ came out of the grave, we came out of the grave. We are in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things, where are they? They're in that hole, that hole, right? Six feet down with dirt thrown on top of them. Old things pass away, behold, all things new. It's a resurrection, come up. A new life. So a man in Christ is freed from that realm of sin. He's dead to sin. He lives in a different realm. He's under a different power, under a different rule, under a different authority. Right? The question at the top of the chapter is, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? The ultimate answer is he can't. He can't. One modern commentator says it like this, those who simply add Christ to their sinful lifestyles are not saved at all. When a person comes to Christ, he shares in his death and becomes a different person. Believers die in Christ to live in Christ. We have been justified that we might be sanctified. Those are inseparable realities. 
right? So again, justification by faith alone doesn't leave room for, uh, for a lifestyle of sin abounding. The reality is that true justification by faith alone, the person of Jesus Christ that unites a person with the Savior, says the exact opposite, right? It doesn't lead to a life of lawlessness. It leads to a life of what? Holiness. Why? Because Christ is holy, and we're united with him. I'm done with Adam. I'm done with the realm of sin. I'm done with the realm of death. I'm now in Adam, or I'm now not in Adam, but I'm in Christ. Grace now rules over me, not death. Life, not death. Right? It's the realm of grace. We've died to sin, been baptized into Christ, been buried with him through baptism into into his death. So instead of free grace leading to lawlessness, it leads to holiness. It leads to a sanctified life. The believer starts to look like Christ because he is united with the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, another commentator says this, Paul teaches that by virtue of our union with Christ in his death, we experience a decisive breach with the reign of sin over us that is so radical it can be described as death to that realm. Right? You get that? We're done with that. It's a completely different, turn the page a different day. When a person dies, he is no longer active in that sphere or realm or relation in reference to that which he has died. His connection with that realm has been dissolved. He has no further communications with those still that live in that realm, nor do they have with him. He is no longer in rapport with life there. It is no longer the sphere of life and activity for him. Right? We've been set free from the realm of condemnation to the realm of forgiveness, the realm of, uh, of uh, death to the realm of life. Right? It's our union with Christ. So our union with Christ, our belief in Christ, justification, sanctification, that process, it brings to the end of our life the dominion of sin, the dominion of death. Our union with Christ brings newness of life, brand new life, a life of obedience, a a life that is marked by good works, not good works for salvation, but good works because of salvation. Again, when you're in Christ, you're entirely different. Look at verse 4 again. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, again, our union with Christ is not only in his death, but in his burial and in his resurrection. So what does it mean? What, what, what did the resurrection mean to Christ? Right? Maybe that's a better question. What did the resurrection mean to Christ? Well, well notice again, he was raised from the dead. Uh, how he was raised from the dead? Christ was raised from the dead by, or th- through or by the glory of the Father. So Christ was dead, he was buried, he rose from the dead by the glorious power and the majesty of God the Father. Now, death, we understand, is a tremendous power. It is the ultimate manifestation of the power of sin. But listen, death was no match for the Savior. Right? Death was no match for the glorious person of God. Christ could not be held captive to the power and the reign of sin and death. It was impossible. I mean, right? wicked men tried. Uh, they conspired against him. They blasphemed him. They mocked him. They spit upon him. They, they crucified him. They killed him. They put his body in a... In the tomb, they rolled a stone over the front of it, and they sealed it up to try to keep him there. They thought it was over. They thought it was the end. Uh, Satan and, and death and hell all, all rejoiced, all the evil ones who came and worked against him. They thought they prevailed against him. But the fact is, he did what? Came out of the tomb. He has the power over death, right? He arose from the dead. It's that glorious power of God that defeats death. He arose, he defeated sin, he defeated death. He destroyed the power of death and the grave. Therefore, the reign of sin is no more. Look what it says. Christ was raised by the, or from the dead by the glory of the Father. 
And when Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that's when grace came to men who believed upon him. Right? Romans 4.25. He was delivered over because of our transgression. He was raised because of our justification. Right? So it's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave that is an absolute total defeat of the reign of sin. Right? And it's through his resurrection from the grave that that declaration has been made public, publicly declared. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the final, per, final proof that he conquered sin. He conquered sin. He conquered death. The reign is entirely over. So again, this is a promotion of life, a promotion of what Christ did. He, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to, to save those who would believe. He entered into a relationship with sin in order that he could be our sin bearer. He died. He's buried. He's risen from the dead. And out of that realm, uh, he's taken us from the realm of death and sin he's taken us into the realm of life and abundant super abounding grace and what is true of him is true of us because of our union with christ i'm telling you what that's exciting that's wonderful truth therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the father right why did christ raise from the dead and look what verse four continues why why did that happen so we too might walk in newness of life right in order that we might walk it's not the the might of or the should of uh, obligation but it's the should of divine accomplishment this is what christ has accomplished for us in order that we might walk in what god has accomplished god has accomplished for us new life right new life newness of life uh, the word there means quality of kind one writer says it like this, righteousness now becomes the pattern for the believer as opposed to the past, which was characterized by habitual sin. Sin may manifest itself from time to time in the believer's life, but it will not characterize his new lifestyle. How do you know if you're really saved? Not because you repented or said a prayer on a certain date and you can remember and you walked an aisle and your mom said you were. No, you don't look into the past, you look at your life at the present. Is there any signs of life in you? Is there the sign of the life of Christ? Because there is for the genuine believer, right? Righteousness becomes the pattern for the believer as opposed to the past, which was characterized by a habitual pattern of sin, right? What did you do before you came to Christ? You sinned and you sinned and you sinned and you sinned. And what did you think of it? You didn't think anything of it because that's the realm you're in. You just do what sinners do. They sin. Now you've repented. You've come to Christ. You're united with Christ. You sin and you hate your sin. I'm struggling with my sin. I hate my sin. Why do I keep doing these things that I don't want to do? We'll get to that in Romans 7, right? But the fact that you hate your sin is the fact of life in you, that Christ is in you. Your life used to be characterized by unbroken patterns of habitual sin. In our life now, sin may from time to time come into the believer's life, but he doesn't live in it. It's not a characteristic of his lifestyle. As soon as we sin, we want to do what? Repent, confess that sin, make our relationship right with God, right? Sin no longer reigns over the believer's life, right? A believer walks daily step by step in newness of life. Because when a person is genuinely saved, his or her life is completely transformed, completely changed. Used to be marked by their union with Adam, used to be marked by a life of, of sin and death, but now in Christ it's marked by obedience and holiness of life. Again, I'll repeat it just in case you haven't heard it the last two times I've said it. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a what? new creature okay if there ain't no new creature in you there ain't no new life in you you aren't in christ right if, if any man is in christ he's a new creature all things pass away become all behold all things 
uh, have become new, fresh, all things fresh, new, right? We used to be evil in Adam, but now in Christ we are righteous. We love righteousness. So again, the question was, does the doctrine of free grace alone through uh, justification of faith alone by grace alone through faith alone in the person of Christ alone, does that promote antinomianism and go out and do whatever you want? If grace is so wonderful and grace, God gives us grace when we sin, why don't we just sin all the more? Does it promote that? No. Because Christianity is not a religion of lawlessness. Christianity, because of our union with Christ, changes us from the inside out. Because now we're like our Savior. Right? You don't just sin so a God's grace may come upon you. No, you want to be obedient to God. You want to be obedient to Christ. May it never be, are we who continue to sin, that grace may increase? How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized in his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised to death through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Right? To continue in sin for a life of a genuine believer, that would be an absolute impossibility. Again, we know people who say that they're saved. We know people that say they're believers in Christ. Well, I know the demons believe in Christ too. Right? They, got, they got good doctrine over in the book of James. But what's different about their life? Nothing. They're absolutely evil from the inside out. The demons are. So if a person says they believe in Christ and they're absolutely evil from the inside out, they are not who they claim to be. They have been deceived. Because of this wonderful union with Christ, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. Occasionally fall into sin, yeah. Struggle with that sin, yeah. Hate that sin, yeah, you better. Love that sin, embrace that sin, live in the pigsty of life, no. It's an impossibility for the, for the true believer. Right? Listen, you, you can't be alive to sin and, and alive to Christ at the same time. It, it's just an impossibility. Because of our relationship with Christ, that union to the former man who we used to be is gone. I mean, I mean, this is glorious truth. This is wonderful truth. If you go, man, I can't deal all with this at you know seven o'clock on a, on a Sunday night, and it's just too much to take in. And you need to go back and listen to it again, because this is like a declaration of freedom. Okay, when I when I was in Adam, all I did was sin, and I hated it. The first step out of that is obviously to repent and come to faith in Christ and have the Holy Spirit living within you. But the next step, I think, is to know that you don't have to. Isn't that free? You don't have to sin. Do we? Yeah, we got our flesh. We got that battle going on. I got that. Not saying sinless perfection. But the great, glorious, redemptive truth, the emancipating truth, like I said last week, didn't I? You know, Lincoln emancipated the slaves. They got to start living like freemen. We got to start living like freemen. Because we've been taken, we're no longer in Adam. We have no contact with that realm anymore. Not because of us, or anything we do, all because of the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our union with Him. Our Father and our God, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful truth. And again, I know it's a lot on a Sunday evening. We pray that if it would be necessary, people go back and listen to it a second time, or a third time, or a 20th time, just to get the point that. You have granted us emancipation, freedom in Christ. What wonderful truth. You've not only guaranteed our eternal destiny and glory, but you've given us life in time. Eternal life begins in time. Transformation of life begins in time. The moment we repent and place our faith in the Savior, it's the person of the Holy Spirit who begins to work out the process of sanctification in our life. Moment by moment, we look more and more like our wonderful Savior. We bless you. We praise you. We love you. Thank you for a great day of worship. Thank you for your wonderful word that just brings so much encouragement to our heart. 
May we have a blessed week. May we walk with you, our God. May we intentionally look for ways to honor our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.